reached epidemic proportions in America. I'm Dr. Paul Christo. This is Aches and Gains. Dr. Paul Christo is one of America's leading experts on relieving pain. He's board-certified, Harvard-trained, and a pain medicine specialist at Johns Hopkins. U.S. News and World Report ranks him as a top doctor and among the top 1% in the nation for pain management. Becker's Review selected him as one of the 70 best pain management physicians in America. He's listed as a super doctor for the Washington, D.C., Baltimore, Northern Virginia area. Aches and Gains is a weekly talk show covering all aspects of pain and pain relief. The human impact is real. Older adults, children, and even infants struggle to cope with pain. But there's hope, and there are treatments that can ease pain and suffering. The show offers compelling stories about people who've found relief. We share cutting-edge treatments from contributing experts, and we offer ways to help people cope with their pain. Welcome to the show. A staggering number of people have died from opioid-related overdoses during the last several years. Prescription opioids, heroin, and illegally manufactured fentanyl are all involved. The opioid crisis hasn't spared the more vulnerable members of our society either. There's been a 225% increase in emergency room admissions for accidental prescription opioid ingestion by children just five years of age and younger. The toll on Americans is staggering, and addiction is a serious threat to our country's public health. There are multiple efforts underway to manage the opioid crisis. Some involve reducing opioid prescriptions, and others strive to expand the availability of naloxone, a life-saving treatment for overdose. The key to opioid addiction, or to addiction to any other substance, is recovery. Eliminating the use of chronic opioids for pain also involves recovery. Paula, our first guest, was a working mom until she developed a chronic pain syndrome that led to opioid use and then addiction. Her life spiraled out of control, and she attempted suicide three times. She'll share her experience with opioid addiction and her path to regaining a life that she almost lost. Then Dr. Greg Hobelman, Chief Medical Officer of Ashley Addiction Treatment, shares his expertise on opioids, addiction, and the promise of recovery. Aches and Gains is supported by Teva Pharmaceuticals, Boston Scientific, Daiichi Sankyo, Ashley Addiction Treatment, and Emergent Biosolutions. Paula is our first guest. She suffered from chronic pain and used opioids to treat it. Unfortunately, she lost control over use and developed the disease of addiction. Let's find out what happened. Paula, welcome to Aches and Gains. Thank you. Tell us what kind of left ankle problem you had back in the year 2000. I was diagnosed with tarsal tunnel plantar fasciitis. Well, tarsal tunnel syndrome compresses the tibial nerve as it travels through the inner part of the leg behind what's called the medial malleolus, which is the bump on the inside of the ankle. But Paula, what was the pain like for you? Well, for me, it was severe pain in the heel and ankle of my foot that shot all the way underneath the foot and all the way up to my knee. Uh And it was causing a lot of problems with me walking. You had the condition for six or seven months and then surgery, but what did you do before the surgery? Heel cups, cortisone shots, physical therapy, Um, and I finally just couldn't take it anymore, so I finally decided to go with the surgery. And how did it go? It was really painful. I woke up from that surgery screaming, and I knew something was wrong. Oh, I'm sorry to hear that. It sounds like you developed a chronic pain syndrome after the surgery. I actually woke up with reflex sympathetic dystrophy. Which is now called complex regional pain syndrome, a debilitating neurologic pain condition that affects the arms or the legs. What symptoms did you experience, Paula? The whole entire foot actually was swollen. It was blue. 
and the pain was going from the tip of my toes all the way up to my knee. What was your first treatment? I went to see a pain management doctor who gave me opioids. Any treatments before that? Physical therapy came again later on, but um, it wasn't for long because it wasn't working. It was hard just to the touch. Mm -hmm. A therapist touching that foot and I would scream. My foot would constantly burn. It felt like someone was taking a hot poker and stabbing me, but at the same time, the foot was freezing cold. The pain, to me, honestly, was worse than childbirth. Wow, I mean, that's saying a lot. For post-operative pain control, the orthopedic surgeon gave you a drug called Vicodin, which is a combination product, hydrocodone, which is an opioid, and acetaminophen, which is called Tylenol. You ended up going to a pain specialist, though, soon after the surgery. What did he do? Well, right after the surgery, they actually gave me a shot of Tylenol in the hospital, and that's when I got my first taste. Mm -hmm. And then I saw a pain management doctor who continued it. Then they put me on Oxycontin. This certainly was a life-changing experience for you. What was your life like before all of this? I worked at a health club. Um, I had never taken a Tylenol. Really? I was working out in a gym three times a week. I was running on the beach. I was riding my bike. Mm -hmm. Um, I was healthy. And then, you know, this happened. And then for 18 years, my life spiraled. Wow, I'm really sorry to hear that. Paula, why were the opioids chosen for your pain to begin with? Um, they said that that was the course of treatment that they used for this type of disease. Did you have any history of substance abuse or a family history of abuse that might have increased your risk of opioid abuse? Well, here's the thing. Yes, there was in my, uh, in my family, but I did not know this. Hmm. Those were secrets. It was on both sides of my family. You mentioned earlier that you were using OxyContin and Vicodin. Ultimately, how many opioids were you taking? There were 10 different narcotics that my pain management doctor actually had me on. And that was for how long? 18 years. Now, did they actually control your pain? Did they control it completely? No. They made it manageable. During this period of time that you were on opioid therapy, you also got some nerve blocks and a trial of spinal cord stimulation. Were they helpful? No. And are you on any non-opioid medications today? Topamax. Mm -hmm. That is the only medication that I still take today. Okay. You were on 10 different opioids and for quite some time. Did you have any side effects to them? I slept my life away. Mm -hmm. Towards the end, whether I needed them or not, I would just get up in the morning, open up my dresser, take everything, and then just get back into bed. The only time I would get out of bed would be to take my meds, go to the bathroom. And I was on crutches for 18 years. Right. And you were on crutches due to the complex regional pain syndrome that you had in your left leg. What were your relationships like during that time? Went downhill. Hmm. My kids still loved me, but as far as the relationship with the spouse, it really wasn't there. Mm -hmm. Addiction typically does hurt relationships. When we talked earlier, you said that 11 years into opioid therapy, you began abusing them. Why? Because a new opioid was introduced. Mm -hmm. And to me, that was, as I used to say, that was the god of gods. Which one? That was the fentanyl spray. I started taking it more than I should have. But my doctor also prescribed it at a very high dosage. Mm -hmm. He was giving me a lot a month. And it got to the point that I actually had to have my daughter hide boxes on me and only give me a certain amount 
because I saw that I was abusing the sprays, that I was not having enough to last me through the month. Yeah. I don't know. Uh, in all honesty, I don't know how I'm alive. Mm-hmm. I was taking three million pills a year by the end of my 18 years. That is really hard to grasp. Why do you feel that you ultimately started abusing the opioid? Was it the euphoria that's produced, or did you feel that you needed more pain relief, for example? I needed more pain relief at first. Mm -hmm. I was depressed also, but I also liked that euphoric feeling. Right. Uh, Paula, you said earlier that you were taking 3 million pills per year. That's a lot of pills. How many per day do you think you were taking? At the beginning, maybe I was taking 9 a day, Mm -hmm. maybe 12. And at the end, probably 30 or 40. That's really astounding. Now, conditions occurred that cut off your prescribed opioids. Which led to my suicide attempt. But that wasn't my only suicide attempt. Mm -hmm. Thank God it was my last. If I didn't go to this rehab, in all honesty, I don't think I would be where I am today. Well, I'm really glad you went. Paula, was there a point when you began losing control of your life? When I went to the doctor's office and they told me that if I stayed with them, they were going to cut all my meds in half. And I sat there saying, there's no way I can live on half of the dosage. And they were going to take away that fentanyl. In all honesty, I realized at that point that I was an addict, and that was the first time in 18 years that I admitted that I was an addict. What a powerful revelation that must have been. Paula, how do you move from taking an opioid normally for pain to abusing it? I started taking like a couple of more because I felt that the pain, they weren't helping for the pain. Mm -hmm. I figured, well, let's just take one extra. Maybe it'll help. If I take one, maybe one more will help. And then I'd be a little bit depressed. I'm like, well, if I take one more and I go to sleep, then if I go to sleep, it'll help with the depression. Mm -hmm. You know, and I had the meds for the depression, but those really weren't helping. So I just figured I'll self-medicate. How did your daily life change once you became an addict? I would go to my kids' baseball, softball, ballet, but at the beginning, I never took my pills because I did not want their friends to know that their mother was on pain medication. So I would go to all of their activities, but I would be sitting there and holding onto the benches, and I would be white-knuckling it until everything was over. And then as soon as I got home, I would take all of my medications and then get into bed. But as the years went on, I started missing everything. Like what? Missing the activities, because I was in so much pain, and I felt the pills were more important. So I would take the pills and I would stay in bed. And then I started not eating. I mean, I used to be always the one who would dye my hair and go for my nails and, you know, straighten my hair. And then it got to the point that I was taking a shower maybe once a week because the water was hurting my body. Mm -hmm. Or I was just so out of it, I couldn't even stand in the shower. Wow. I mean, what kind of a toll did this take on your marriage? It's over. But it's good that it's over. Because um, by me going to rehab... I not only escaped the drugs, but I escaped a very bad marriage. Mm -hmm. I only stayed, I feel, because with me being addicted to the drugs and living with the RSD, I really had nowhere else to go. So I stayed out of convenience. But now that I'm clean and sober and by getting the help that I needed, I realized it was the best thing for me. Did you keep your addiction hidden at all? Yes. As far as the amount of 
pills that I was getting each month, mm-hmm. nobody really knew. You know, if my daughter or my son um, would ask, you know, I would always say it was half the amount. Yeah. I would never tell anybody the exact amount. Well, in part two, we'll find out how you regained your life that you almost lost. Paula, thank you for joining us today. Thank you so much. Up next is Dr. Greg Hobelman, expert on opioids, addiction, and recovery. I'm Dr. Paul Christo, and you're listening to Aches and Gains. Aches and Gains is supported by Teva. Teva is committed to helping those suffering from migraine. Visit moretomigraine.com and like the Facebook page to stay informed, share your experience, and connect with others living with migraine. For cutting-edge treatments and resources, follow Dr. Paul Christo on Twitter at Dr. Paul Christo and like Aches and Gains with Dr. Paul Christo on Facebook. Dr. Greg Hobelman is an addiction psychiatrist and a pain specialist. He's also an adjunct faculty member in the Department of Psychiatry at Johns Hopkins School of Medicine. Dr. Hobelman, welcome to Aches and Gains. Thank you. Glad to be here. You know, there's so much in the news about addiction, and specifically opioid addiction and death. Rates of opioid addiction have increased almost five-fold in recent years. Why has this happened? Um, One is the increase in access to opioids in general through prescriptions, and we did start that in the medical world. Mm -hmm. Um, But then, in addition to that, there's a change in the way that heroin has been distributed, uh, coming up from Mexico and and differences in actually the way that they deal the substance. And then finally, the change from heroin to fentanyl, much more potent substance, which increases the risk of overdose death dramatically. Yeah, you know, I think it was multifactorial. We had a huge increase in pain care in the 1990s. At that time, we saw data that opioids were useful for chronic non-cancer pain. Primary care physicians began prescribing them, and they're at the front line of medicine. And as a result, we had an expansion of use. Uh, Greg, what role do you think the pharmaceutical companies had in the opioid crisis? Some of the marketing strategies and so forth, if not ill-intended, they were intended for the use of uh, you know, promoting and selling a substance mm-hmm. and not fully letting the, the information that's needed uh, get out there to providers. So there's, there's withheld information. You mean withholding information about their abuse potential? For sure. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Do you feel that most patients using opioids for chronic pain take them responsibly? Well, I think the patients who are well-selected and that are screened absolutely use them appropriately. Um, and I think that people who are continued to be evaluated and screened throughout uh, and monitored closely can use their medications appropriately, uh, without a doubt. And even when used appropriately, they can run into trouble with them. That's true. We heard about that from our previous guest, Paula. Do you feel the opioid crisis is due to the non-medical use of opioids by pain patients or by non-pain patients who are misusing or abusing opioids? Well, what we know is that over the past you know, 15, 20 years, that the majority of patients who are using illicit opiates started with prescribed opiates. Mm-hmm. doesn't mean they were prescribed to them, but they were <laughs> using prescribed opiates. So we did increase the access to opiates through prescribing them, and that has ultimately driven people to using illicit substances. Mm -hmm. Um, So I do think it's played a a large role. Um, But there are, you know, a a percentage of people, and we're seeing more and more, who are starting with illicit substances now. You mean heroin? They think they're using heroin, and very often they're using just fentanyl at this point. And by the way, fentanyl is a synthetic opioid that's 80 to 100 times more potent than morphine. Dr. Hobelman, why are we seeing more and more people starting off with illegal opioids compared to prescription opioids? Well, in general, um, it turns out, particularly over the last few years, um, they've been more available. So it's actually easier to obtain illicit uh, opiates. They tend to be more potent uh, and they're cheaper. 
So it makes all the sense in the world for someone who has a dependence on opiates to switch. Let's step back for a minute. The term addiction, or opioid use disorder, is often misunderstood. Would you tell us how we determine whether a friend or a family member or a patient has the disease of addiction? If someone is using despite negative consequences, there's a problem. Mm -hmm. And then if they're lying about it, it's even more indication that there's a problem. And then using that family intuition, that loved one intuition, plays a large role. So generally, if you think that something is going on, it's probably worth investigating and there probably is an issue. Okay. But the bottom line is use despite consequences is the best indicator that someone has a problem. Some of the risk factors that we should be aware of with respect to addiction are a family or personal history of abuse, active psychiatric disorders like anxiety or depression, and younger age. Greg, how much of a risk factor is age? Someone starts using a substance at the age of 14 versus 22 years old, mm-hmm. they have about a 200% increase in likelihood of developing a substance use disorder. I mean, that's an astounding increase, Greg. You know, when we talk about addiction in general, is there a common factor for why people turn to mind-altering drugs? I mean, escapism, for example? Most people use substances to change their mood. That's whether they use caffeine or nicotine or alcohol. It's a very natural thing to do. There are certain times and certain people, again, who like the effects of these substances, use them to cope, use them because they were pressured by peers and so forth, Mm -hmm. to use them, and they increase their use, make some poor judgments along the line, and a certain percentage of them are going to develop a substance use disorder. Paula mentioned that she started increasing her use, using opioids in a way that wasn't prescribed, and that she had a great sense of euphoria when she used them as well. Yeah, and the euphoria is really a a common theme with all these substances of abuse. Mm -hmm. They alter your mood, you know, in a pleasant way. Yeah. So, you know, it makes a lot of sense that people turn to this to use it as a sense of escape, relaxation. And over time, they use that as their primary coping mechanism. Mm -hmm. So sometimes we describe it as people with a substance use disorder have a broken coper. (laughs) And so that becomes their primary and sometimes only way of coping with issues in life. And they have to relearn, you know, how to, how to cope over time yeah. you know, with coping mechanisms and so forth in order to recover. Is addiction just a weakness and character flaw, as many people think? We'll find out what Dr. Hobelman thinks right after the break. I'm Dr. Paul Christo, and you're listening to Aches and Gains. Aches and Gains is brought to you by Narcan. Talk to your pharmacist today about a safety plan for your home. Boston Scientific, a leader in microelectric implantable technologies used to treat chronic neuropathic pain. Ashley Addiction Treatment, the leading addiction treatment provider, serving the unique needs of those suffering from chronic pain by placing a heavy emphasis on physical healing and offering a specialized team of nurses, doctors, counselors, and fitness instructors to empower and bring hope of a more fulfilling life. Dr. Greg Hobelman is an addiction psychiatrist and pain specialist. He's here today talking about addiction and recovery. Uh, Greg, you know, the reward system in the brain is very powerful. Studies on animals show that they will self-inject addictive substances to the exclusion of all else. I mean, they'll die of thirst, hunger, for example, at the expense of losing that reward. I still feel that many people view addiction as a character flaw and that, well, addiction is just really a choice. What do you say to counter that? Well, I think we know enough about the neurobiology of addiction at this point to know that 
there are brain changes that occur mm-hmm. that ultimately result in the loss of control of behavior. Right. Ultimately, it captures your brain. That's what we talk about with the hijacked brain and so forth. So we understand that this is very much a real neurobiological disorder. No question about it. Mm-hmm. In fact, it, that's been studied for the past several decades. We understand that so well. Now we have to put a little bit more emphasis on the environmental issues that we need to change to help people to recover from addiction and to change the environment so that people are less susceptible to it over time, to yeah. prevent it. Agreed. And that stigma is emphasized by a 2016 opinion survey that found that 54% of respondents thought that people addicted to opioid pain relievers were to blame for their addiction. 46% felt that such people are irresponsible, and 45% said they would be unwilling to work closely with such people. Greg, also in 2016, the CDC published sort of a landmark report that cited the failed efforts on the part of us, healthcare providers, physicians, to consider the addictiveness potential of opioids, their low therapeutic ratio, and a lack of data on effectiveness. Do you agree with the CDC? I think that we did certainly start prescribing opiates with lack of clear data that they were effective and they were safe. So I think that there was a reaction to what was occurring, and I think that the CDC makes a good point. Mm -hmm. The CDC guidelines were guidelines that uh, were not new. These were guidelines that were used by responsible pain management physicians for years. So a lot of this we, we understood and we knew, but yeah, they were pointing out that we made mistakes in the medical world which are undeniable. We certainly did. Do you feel that chronic opioid use leads to heroin use? In other words, are opioids a gateway drug to heroin? Yes. Prescription opiate use does open the door to using illicit opiates. Mm -hmm. No question about it. And we've seen that. Again, four out of five people who are using heroin started with prescription opiates. So it's undeniable that that's occurring. I mean, that's a lot of people, four to five. Why are we seeing the transition from prescription opioid use to illicit opioid use? For one, if you're prescribed opiates for a period of time and then for some reason you are cut off from that prescription, which unfortunately has occurred without the proper treatment, proper weaning and so forth, people are now have an addiction or at least a physical dependence, if not a physical dependence and a substance use disorder, and they're desperate. And so they go and seek what they need. They know very well that using another opiate is going to relieve their symptoms. So they are going to seek a substance, and it turns out that the substance they're seeking, the illicit substances, are cheaper, more potent, and generally more available. The what? Heroin? Heroin, yeah. Well, now, heroin, fentanyl. Mm-hmm. Now, most with an opioid use disorder or who are misusing opioids get them from prescriptions or from friends and relatives. Is that consistent with your experience? What we are saying, so we have two different populations, you know, here at Ashley. We have patients who are treated for their chronic uh, debilitating pain, mm-hmm. and then we have the people who are coming in for treatment of substance use disorder. The patients who are treated for substance use disorder primarily are getting their, uh, their drugs on the street. So they're buying them from a dealer. And again, widely available. Very often the patients who are coming in for treatment of pain are continued to be prescribed opiates. Mm-hmm. Um, so they're getting them more th- from prescription. And they're getting them through either their primary care physician or a pain physician, you know, somebody who has continued that, but their problem, pain condition is not improving. Yeah. And that's why they're coming to us. The vast majority of people are getting opiates these days are getting them illicitly from what we're saying. Which ones? Heroin. 
and what they think is heroin, actually. But in most cases these days, uh, people that think they're using heroin are using fentanyl and fentanyl only. Why is that? Well, because for the dealers, fentanyl is a much better option. It's a much more potent substance. So a, a smaller volume packs a larger punch. So they're mm-hmm. using fentanyl as opposed to heroin. And even they're pressing fentanyl into fake prescription pills as well. So people think they're buying oxycodone when they're actually just buying fentanyl. That's really scary. Listen, we're out of time. Dr. Holtman, I want to thank you for being here today. Thank you, Paul. I appreciate it. It's been a pleasure chatting with you. Please join us for part two, when we talk to Paula Levy about how she overcame her opioid addiction. And Dr. Hopeman returns to provide solutions to the opioid crisis. I'm Dr. Paul Christo, and you're listening to Aches and Gains. The views and opinions expressed in this radio program are solely the views of Dr. Paul Christo and do not necessarily express the views of this radio station and Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine, nor an endorsement by any or all of them of any of its content. This show provides medical information, not advice. Please consult your personal physician before engaging in any course of treatment or use of any of the techniques or products discussed on this show. Discussion of particular uses of products on this show have not been approved by any of the manufacturers of such products. To access podcasts of the show, please go to paulchristomd.com. That's paulchristomd.com. Aches and Gains is produced by Ty Ford. Dr. Paul Christo is the executive producer. Thanks for listening. This is Aches and Gains with Dr. Paul Christo.